The following is a free flow discussion Terry and I had on monopolies. The context is first set through the lens that Peter Thiel offers in his book, Zero to One. If you haven't read it, it's a good one, and I strongly recommend. After setting the stage a bit, we move into how this applies to MLS and American team sports in general. Again, I feel obligated to repeat that if you happen to be in the soccer ecosystem at all, how it's operated at the pro level impacts you. It's just a matter of being able to recognize how. That won't necessarily be answered in this episode, but the essence of this episode is a necessary building block on the road to understanding how you are impacted. If you've got a kid that's 8 to 18 years of age in the sport here in the U.S., you are impacted. Are you a pro player? You are impacted. Are you a coach at any level? You're impacted. An employee of a club? Impacted. A business owner or operator in the ecosystem? Yes, you are impacted. Every touch point is impacted by how the ecosystem is regulated and operated at the pro level. I should also repeat what I've said for many years. I don't blame MLS for the way they operate. If I were an owner, I'd want a monopoly as well, and I'd work very hard to preserve it. But that does not negate how the ecosystem is adversely affected. This is something that should be discussed and not silenced. Terry Ransbury joins me here as we continue with our drip-by-drip outlaying of the promotion relegation topic. Episode number 289 on the impact on scouting was our first. This is our second. I hope you enjoy, but before we jump in, I'll do a couple minutes of ads for coaches and parents of youth players looking to solve their soccer problems. These are problems we ourselves have encountered in developing players at every level, and of course ended up solving to great effect. If you're a coach wanting to implement a possession-based methodology where it's your team that's in control of the match instead of it being the usual back-and-forth random mess that you see here in American soccer, the solution is at 343coaching.com. And guys, this is coming directly from someone who has implemented the methods, refined them, and helped transform the landscape by showing playing this way is possible with American players in the American landscape. This is not the usual scripted course or presentation regurgitating material from some book, some PowerPoint presentation from a federation, or quoting some famous pro coaches overseas. To successfully implement a legit methodology, you need to witness it, not only visually, but audibly as well. That's what you get at 343coaching.com. You get immersed in the actual team training sessions, all professionally caught on video from Elevation and Coach Brian's audio captured as well. Again, these are the actual team training sessions with Brian's actual players as they prepare for match play on the weekends and long-term development of their abilities. With well over 1,000 members nationwide at various stages of the program, coach success stories keep coming in. We'd like to see yours as well. Now, if you're not a coach but a parent, it's no secret the American youth system is screwed up. So you need solutions as well. What team should you play for? What coach is or isn't a good fit for your kid? Should you do personal training? Should you not? What's important to look out for there? What should you be looking for in the near, medium, and long term? I mean, the questions and circumstances are endless. They can depend on age, level of play, position, club, 
geography, politics, and so on. But while the context might change, the best way to increase your chance of making good decisions is by developing your skills in the fundamentals. And I'm not necessarily just talking about skills of the player. I'm talking about your skills as a parent making decisions or helping make decisions or guiding your player. In one minute, you can join the email list at 343masterclass.com. When enrollment of the program opens, we'll send you a note. And if you're interested in a solution that blends both academics and soccer, my co-host Terry in this episode founded the Accelerator Schools. There's even the opportunity to do this in Europe as well. To learn more, visit acceleratorschool.com. All right, I hope you enjoy this episode on monopolies. We're just scratching the surface here, folks, but it's an important starting point for us to further expand down the line. Enjoy. From the top, this guy, Peter Thiel, very broadly known, um, in the tech industry, he's a, a venture capitalist now. I think he started out with PayPal, made a lot of money uh, with PayPal, and then he's a VC. And I don't like this term, but he's kind of like a thought leader in the space and in pushing the boundaries of civilization, so to speak, because he, you know, he's investing in bi- the builders, right, of yeah. of tech. So he came out with this book. It's called Zero to One. I read it many years ago, and the basic premise is that monopolies are where it's at and competition is kind of evil in the sense of if you look at the ideal case of what competition does, as you said, Terry, it brings your profits to zero because everybody will compete for the customer, whether it's business to consumer, business to business, it doesn't matter. You have a customer and then to win the customer over, aside from building a better product than your competitors, you reduce prices. And you know you can only reduce your price so much before you go negative. And many businesses do go negative as a loss leader to hopefully recapture a bigger piece of the pie or market. Anyways, long story short, Ideal case, you go to zero, zero profits. So if you're a business, you don't want to be in the competition space. Uh, You want to be in the monopoly space. And he gives the example, like you said, of the airline industry, where I think the profit margins, Terry, are like 3%, something like that. In 2019, Uh, 3.4% profit. Yeah. $172 billion in revenue. Yeah. And this really resonated with me, aside from him making the point, a salient point, It resonated because I come from the world of physics and in physics, to really glean insight into a problem or into nature, you look at the ideal case first, okay? So you look at a projectile traveling on a trajectory through the air, but you get rid of air resistance, you get rid of photons impacting the projectile, and you see that you get a perfect parabolic trajectory, okay? And that gives you a lot of insight into the laws governing the system. And then you can start tweaking and throwing in some imperfections. You throw in a little bit of air resistance and you see that the parabolic trajectory gets deviated by whatever, some sort of low percent, okay, if you don't do something crazy. And you can add in more second order, third order effects and perturb the system a little bit and see how it behaves. So when Peter gave the example of the airline industry, or first the ideal case, that competition makes your profits go to zero, that's the ideal situation. 
Then you throw in a little bit of perturbation, say, okay, well, you know, the world's not ideal. There's some fluctuations here. And so let's look at the airline industry where there is all this competition for the customer. They're constantly reducing rates, different business models to make airfare super cheap, like a Southwest, I think even mentions. And then lo and behold, the profit margin is 3%. So that's your little perturbation. So I really, really resonated with what he was saying. And then when, if we bring it down to the soccer world, let's talk about MLS, okay? MLS is a league which has a division one sanction and there only can be, as far as precedent is concerned, there can only be one league in a country that is division one. Well, they have it. And they have it through the regulatory body, which awards this sort of sanction. That is the United States Soccer Federation. So they have a monopoly on the Division I sanction, which basically brands them as the major league in the country. That brand power is super important, super potent, and nobody else can have it. So in my view, Terry, they have a monopoly via regulatory capture. Okay? It's not a monopoly via any sort of other modality. I know you wrote some things down here um, that people can achieve basically monopoly status through having a 10x improvement on an existing performance metric. So make your product 10 times better than what's out in the market, you know, and then all of a sudden you can have that sort of monopoly power. One such example that I can think of, because I look at these antitrust cases sometimes, or at least the headlines, Google has such enormous market share in the search engine space because when they came out with their search engine, it was that much better. It was 10x better than everybody else. So they basically monopolized the search engine market. But, you know, the, the way that these monopolies defend their positions, if any sort of antitrust sort of accusations come their way, and Peter addresses this, is all you have to do and what they actually do is they broaden the scope or their, their definition of what of their competitive landscape gets broadened. They brought it. So Google will say, no, 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 we're not in the search engine uh, marketplace. We're in the advertising space. And then all of a sudden, they brought in the market to include magazines, newspapers, billboards along freeways, TV commercials. Like that is the market that they are competing in. And all of a sudden, their market share isn't 97%, like in the search engine space. Their market share is whatever it happens to be, Terry, 10%, 15%, 7%. I don't know what their piece of the pie of the whole advertising space is. But that is their strategy, and that's how they defend themselves. Um, bring it back to soccer again. So MLS, if there's any sort of anti-competitive accusations lobbed their way, they say, no, no, no. We're not in the soccer marketplace. We're in the professional sports marketplace. And we are competing with the likes of the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NHL, the Olympics, and on and on and on. So our piece of the pro sports landscape here in our country is minuscule. We are actually the little puppy, you know, that's getting devoured by all our competitors. Um, and they can even broaden it further, you know, if for some reason the prosecuting side makes a really good case about how they are harming the soccer specific landscape. They can say, they can also say things like, well, we're not even in the pro sports space. We're in, in the entertainment business. So it's not just the NFL, NBA, all this sort of stuff. 
No, we're competing with Hollywood. We're competing with Netflix. We're competing with Amazon Prime. We're competing with esports. Like, guys, we're dying over here. If you, if you, you know, try to crack us open and decentralize us and open us up for pro rail, you, we might, you might as well just destroy our business, so to speak. So obviously, Peter Thiel wasn't talking about soccer. He was talking about all these other case studies. But when you relate it to soccer, it really makes sense. The business model of MLS makes sense. Um, their defense makes sense. The reality, though, is, you know, I, I still try to wrap my head around people who sympathize with MLS because, as I've said so many times, I don't think they understand the other side of the story of how they are harming countless communities that are involved in soccer and, and, and countless people that are involved in soccer. And that's the story that I would like to tell. And we, that's why we're, you know, deploying this podcast. Yeah, let me add to that. Uh, part of the theme of the book was that capitalism is not the same as competition. And those words sound close enough where it's, you have to really think about what he's saying there. And he's, you know, he's, he's citing the, the Google monopoly, you know, there's, they're at a 20% profit margin. And if you can do that, you can be more stable, right? So if you're down at 3.4%, those black swans and much less any perturbation, and you can fold and go under easily. So this monopoly's got a, a self-fulfilling prophecy that keeps it alive. And so let me just check on some of the things from the book that he says to achieve the monopoly. You mentioned the 10X improvement. You know, that's, they were competing with nothing. So the MLS is 10X better than, than, than a dead league. Uh, and then can you own the market and set your own prices arbitrarily? Hell yeah, they're doing that. But they just decided 325 million for the next uh, franchise sale. And it's just gone up and they're the only one that sets it. And there's no, there's no counter pressure. There's no market pressure helping that. So check that box. Uh, start small and monopolize, uh, take a big share of a small market. They certainly have done that. Uh, and then don't disrupt the giant. So I interpret that maybe that they're nice to FIFA. FIFA could be the giant that could come in and change things, but there's a relationship there that's mutually agreed upon, even if it's behind the scenes. So they're not, they don't face a giant that's going to crush them. Uh, focus on the end game. So they've done a Fabulous move. Getting the World Cup bid is just going to sustain their brand image and enhance that monopoly that they're in charge of now. Uh, and then he says to achieve monopoly is branding is, is critical. And you've pointed that out. They have a huge advantage. And just by defining the second leagues, USL, USL2, what championship, uh, they, they set a, a wall and it's a it's a big barrier to climb to be on par, and they do take advantage of that. And then just to finish a couple of things, to maintain the monopoly, uh, one thing they don't seem to have is intellectual property protection, but you're close on the fact that they've got a, a legal monopoly on it. They've, they've won in court already, and so they're, they're protected that way, not quite in the patent sense, but uh, scale up by degree. So limited controlled expansion. This is from the book, not, not the MLS playbook. It's exactly what they're doing, right? One franchise this year to the next year, the next one's going to be. And it allows for them to justify the price going up, even though it's arbitrary. And then build the brand to a cult level. I mean, they're, I don't think they're there yet, but uh, as far as competing against USL, they certainly have a huge advantage. 
Now, on the grand scheme of things, they've got a big uphill battle with uh, some of the other super leagues around the around the world. But that's that's what the book says, and and MLS is doing almost all of it, right? Yeah, I would I would say a couple of things. Build the brand to cult level. The thing that comes to my mind is MLS fans, particularly the verbose ones that are online. It does really have a tinge of cultiness to it, if that's a word. Um, they they are out there willing to defend MLS pretty much on anything and everything, and are not open to any sort of discussion whatsoever. Um, what on pro rail, on USL, on the international game, they're basically saying MLS is where it's at. It's more entertaining than every other league in the world because there's parity. There's all this. Uh, sort of yeah well i guess parody is their number one advocacy over everybody else and and that parody gives everybody a chance to win a title so it gives every city a chance to win a title there's always that sort of hope so they make it all about the title and if you look at all the other leagues i don't care if it's the premier league la liga the big five that's crap and the way that they do stuff is crap because it's always the same two or three teams that win every year. So that's the wrangle. They protect it to death. They also protect the single entity structure and the closed system to death, saying promotion relegation would be the demise of soccer altogether and that MLS is the savior of soccer in America. There was nothing before MLS, which is false. They, they clearly don't know their history, but that MLS finally is the one that saved all of us. And all the success that the national team has and all the success associated with soccer, period, is thanks to MLS. So they do have this cult, I guess, is what I'm getting at uh, in a long-winded way. Your, your note here on don't disrupt the giant, the thing that came to my mind when I first saw that wasn't necessarily FIFA, although you do have a point there, Terry, um, even though it was the United States that that sent the justice department after them, you know, in that, in that huge scandal and corruption and all that stuff. But, um, the thing that came to my mind regarding the giant was like the NFL. Yeah. And, and their position in the sports marketplace here in the United States. And lo and behold, uh, a vast, a large number, if not the majority of MLS owners are NFL owners. So you're not really disrupting the giant. You're kind of in bed with the giant. And you're also not pissing off the revenue mode or, or, yeah, or tapping into the revenue mode of the giant through broadcasting. Um, MLS is chill and even sometimes even promotes the NFL in certain ways. I've seen campaigns where MLS and the NFL kind of are in bed together again. So anyways, that's what came into my mind regarding all those points. But for me... These are kind of second order things that they're all trying to do to further entrench themselves. But the first order impact as to why they have a monopoly is regulatory capture. If you don't mind, Terry, I'm going to read a couple of sentences here as to the definition yeah. of regulatory capture. It says, regulatory capture is an economic theory that regulatory agencies may come to be dominated by the interests they regulate and not by the public interest. The result is that the agency instead acts in ways that benefits the interests it is supposed to be regulating. So straight up here, we're talking about the MLS and U.S. Soccer Federation. 
U.S. Soccer Federation is the regulatory agency that sets policy and regulates the soccer marketplace here in the United States and is supposed to look out for the interest of all its constituents. And that means all professional leagues, both men and women. It means the entire youth landscape and all the competitions associated therein. But it seems like all policy has always been favorable to MLS and to the detriment of all others. And if you look at the board of directors and the decision makers within the United States Soccer Federation, a lot of those positions, the incumbents of, of a lot of those positions come from MLS, whether they currently work in MLS, like Commissioner Dom Garber, or they were prior MLS people who are now in positions of influence there at the Federation. So effectively, MLS controls the regulatory body. There you go. Um, that's what I had to say on, on the table, Ter. Yeah, do you, do you happen to know the, and we can look it up, the voting uh, block that advantage yeah, we, that they have? Yeah, we need to look into that, and that would that we would probably inject that into whatever this episode turns out to be. Okay, so where you wrote down a franchise team club values in all sports and you and you have a list there of the most valuable uh, properties the Dallas Cowboys the Yankees the Knicks Barcelona Real Madrid the Lakers uh, so on and so forth um in the context of monopoly i suppose these entities do have a monopoly well as the NFL does as a collective just yeah. like the MLS yeah well exactly NFL does as a collective just like MLS does um but if you if if one wanted to look, zoom in at the individual team slash club and th- consider them as a monopoly or not a monopoly, I guess one can do that as well um, because the barrier to entry is just so astronomically high, and these and these entities have been entrenched for so long uh, and have that brand power now as a result of that that effectively you can't compete. So if if we look at the Dallas Cowboys, okay, they have brick and mortar in the form of a stadium, you know, right there smack in Dallas. Um, so that's already a huge barrier to entry for anybody else who would want to have a professional football team in Dallas. Really, you're going to just build a stadium, you know, that's half a billion dollars or one point or one billion dollars if you want to compete with the NFL or whatever there. And even if you could do that and erect the brick and mortar facility, you're up against so many things. One, you're going to have to, you have to have the political capital, you know, to push that through city councils and do the whole political process. That's a whole other barrier aside from the money and the land. Then uh, you're a new entity. You don't have the brand power that the Dallas Cowboys have established over decades and decades. Three, even if you do all of these things, okay, where are you going to compete? Because the NFL isn't just going to say, oh, cool, yeah, come you know, be a team and compete in our circuit. You can't. So effectively, you, you have to create an entire league and do this all around the country to be able to, I don't know, participate in, in the landscape. So, so the Dallas Cowboys have a monopoly as well, as do the Cardinals, as do the New York Giants, the Jets, the Dolphins, whatever. And in perpetuity, Terry. They do. Uh, basically, unless the owner dies and a new owner comes in and wants to move the club to his hometown or some arbitrary reason, yes, there's no 
digging them out. It's, it's not possible. Uh, I can't think of any circumstances where it would make any you know, remote sense to, to even try to do that, right? It's inc- and they, they it's love incredible. it. It's, it's a monopoly. Thank you very much. And it's not like they are the number one franchise because they win all the time. They yeah. don't. Yeah. And the NFL, again, expand the playoffs. So everybody's in to make sure that the random winner comes out, the Super Bowl champions every once in a while. We have parity. Their revenue goes up. It's, of course, shared as well. And all is good. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. I do not know of another industry. Yeah, that that has this sort of power. And, and, and now I, the more and more I became educated on this topic, the more and more I realized why people want to buy a professional sports team aside from just aside from just being a fan of the sport itself. So Mark Cuban buys the Dallas Mavericks. Okay, he's he's into basketball like crazy, all that stuff, but it's a very wise investment. Even if, you know, on the balance sheet year over year, you break even, you know, because it's not like the profits are amazing. Okay. Maybe you break even, maybe you lose money, but it doesn't matter because you have a monopoly. The asset itself appreciates over time by that mere fact alone. So instead of having your money in fiat currency or having your money in, in any sort of other asset that's exposed to normal market pressures as we come to know it, a, a sports professional sports team is kind of immune to all of those things. It's an incredible asset to hold. It's immune. And, and also, it gives him a chance to do an appearance on TV. And all he needs for a platform is to do something stupid in front of the camera or flamboyant or whatever. And he's on, he's got on Sports Center, he's got a microphone and can say whatever he wants. And then if he doesn't have uh, anything to say for a while, and then he comes up with another idea that he needs to promote, well, he just does something outrageous on courtside. And he gets it right away. So it's <laughs> there's leverage. And I think you brought it up before about, you know, there's other parts of his empire that are successful just because he gets exposure to that. And yeah, and it's, you, you know. leverage the sports team to, for your adjacent businesses, your real money makers. So if you <laughs> Steve Ballmer at Microsoft, you know, well, he's not the owner of Microsoft. It's a public company, but nonetheless, was a CEO, has huge uh, um shares of stock in there and you know he buys the clippers and all of a sudden he's a public household name and you leverage that for political reasons as well i think mark wasn't mark cuban somehow not in the discussion for running for president but it, he's That's kind of on, oh was he okay uh, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah so there there's that because he, he's in the public limelight so he can talk about oh, politics and, and critique you know Trump or Biden or whoever he's on CNN or Fox news. And this is, and he, he's building up his, his profile to eventually maybe get into those positions of power on the political side. Yep. Let me add some numbers to the discussion. So, uh, the, the 50 most valuable franchises and teams, because we have to include uh, the soccer guys in there increased 9.9% even in the pandemic year. On average, they're up 55% in five years. That's over, you know, 10, that's 11% a year. Uh, And here's the nut that pays for certainly the NFL, just the TV rights, $10.3 billion a year. Now to put that in perspective, the EPL is 2.18 billion a year. So the NFL is roughly 
five times more valuable on TV, even though there's, there's a lot less games, right? And, but it's just, it's a moneymaker, but the, to own those franchises, it's a, it's a no lose. And the value of the franchise dwarfs the operating numbers, but let me just give you one there. So in 2019, the year before the pandemic, their Cowboys revenue, 980 million, operating profit, 425 million. It's mm. not a bad business. Now they mm. do very well. They merchandise like crazy. And then they're, you know, they used to be America's team. I think they are no longer quite that, but it's a, it's good if you can handle one of these monopolies, right? Crazy good. Yeah. Terry, so we, soccer, we should do soccer the- clubs were up 30%, the ones in the top in the last two years with a pandemic year. Yeah. No, we should do, we should do the calculation also at some point. Uh, you have the example here, Cowboys purchased in 1989 for 150 million, and now it's worth, the asset's worth 5.7 billion with a B. Yeah. Be nice to do the year over year. I'm not going to whip out a spreadsheet now, but the year over year percentage appreciation of that and compare that to other asset classes. Uh, for example, putting your money into the S&P 500, and that appreciating roughly to 10% year over year. I'm sure this absolutely obliterates the S&P 500. Let's just do uh, audio math here. So 150 million to 5.7 billion. That's uh, what? That's a 40x return, give or take. Looks like it. Yep. Yeah, that would be 6 billion. 40x since you know 1990. Not bad. 30 years. <laughs> Yeah, thirty years. Uh, thirty years, forty x. You're 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 doing better it, than my checking account. It's 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 phenomenal for sure. It's good, and the, you know the soccer clubs are not uh, immune from it. Again, I mentioned they're up thirty percent on average over the past two years with a pandemic year, mm -hmm. and so, and then the the TV rights are about to get renewed, and they're going up. Yeah, as as you know, as Americans tune into the EPL. It's going up as China tunes into the world of football. It's going up. And, you know, with those markets, uh, in, I'm talking soccer specific, I would say, you know, the NFL is pretty saturated in the, in the United States. And hence, they're going to play in Germany, I heard. Yeah. And they play in, the, in London. And, and so they're just doing that to increase TV rights. So the NFL has got the rest of the world yeah. to grow into and soccer is really has tons of growth in the U S and China. And that just sets you up for life Yeah. Uh, as far as, as doing that. And, and we're, we're seeing that. And I just think we haven't really hit the Asia expansion or I would say we're not aware as Americans, as much of the Asian expansion has already happened. Uh, but the potential there is just staggering to make these numbers crazy, crazy good. Well, that's it for today, guys. Thank you for listening. A reminder for coaches, you can get both the free and premium coaching programs at 343coaching.com. Don't let anyone tell you your teams can't win by playing dominant possession-based football while also developing individual players to the highest levels. Nonsense. We've proved it at every single level and so have hundreds of serious member coaches across the country. Now that we've moved on to the pro level, we're delivering everything we've learned in the program. Don't wait and continue delaying getting on a proven path. 
and parents. 343masterclass.com is where you want to go to get a working compass for navigating the American soccer landscape with your player. It's pretty bad out there, but let our experience guide you. And if you're interested in a solution that blends both academics and soccer, my co-host Terry in this episode founded the Accelerator Schools. There's even the opportunity to do this in Europe as well. To learn more, visit acceleratorschool.com. Until next time, cheers everyone and keep building.